0: In this episode of the Antlers and Hicks podcast, we're going back in time and looking closely at the history of whitetail deer in Louisiana and how hunting them went through an evolution. From the lowest of lows to the highest of highs, we'll cover topics that I've never even known about before. I searched the Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries website and found a ton of good information. Before Louisiana was colonized, the statewide white-tailed deer population was estimated at close to 400,000 deer. During the 19th century, early settlers and market hunters reduced the herd significantly. Large-scale timber cuts in the late 1800s and early 1900s left the deer concentrated in the remaining cover and in habitat where they were vulnerable to over-harvest, the proverbial shooting of fish in a barrel. At the time, Louisiana hunting laws and bag limits were too liberal or not enforced, causing the deer numbers to fall dramatically. From 1915 until 1925, the deer population was the lowest that the state had ever seen, with an estimated all-time low of 20,000 deer in 1925. The remaining deer that did survive did so in deep swamps and margins, and as formerly deforest habitats grew into second-growth forests, the deer population began to recover. The Wildlife and Fisheries began managing the deer in the state of Louisiana in the 1940s by setting seasons and restocking deer. By the early 1950s, managers had built a successful restocking program and deer were captured at public and private tracts of land throughout the state, such as Delta National Wildlife Refuge and imported from Texas and Wisconsin. The restocking efforts took place in 42 parishes. The most successful restocking efforts were in-state transplants while the northern deer struggled in the harsh climate of the region. Recent DNA analysis does not show any remnant of genetics from the northern lineage. Today, the deer population in Louisiana is estimated to be at least 500,000 deer. I wanted to get a good perception of what North Louisiana and specifically Union Parish was going through at that time, so I got with some of the most knowledgeable guys that I know about with both whitetail deer and Union Parish. There's always a story, and it's my job to find it. This is the Antlers and Hicks podcast episode two. It's one heck of a comeback with Larry Savage, Scotty Booth, and my old man, Terry Hicks. So, I'm here with Larry
1: Savage. Now, tell me your background. What's your, what's your background with the state? Well, I'm basically a country boy from Darbonne, Louisiana. Uh-huh. I was fortunate. I was a baby boomer born right after World War II in 1947. And I was fortunate to go up, go up and see the whole spectrum of deer management, uh, from the first deer I saw and then and, and through my career, wildlife and fisheries. Spent 35 years with Louisiana Department of Wildlife Fisheries as a biologist, and uh, I loved every minute of it. And uh, worked, I uh, worked, um, as a regional biologist then i worked the deer program then i worked the turkey program okay and um so i love uh, wildlife management right i can tell yeah yeah i've known you my whole life
0: and you know when you're a little kid i knew you worked for the wildlife fisheries right i didn't realize until i got older just what you did and i right. you know i was like whoa you know this yeah. this guy
1: has seen it well as a matter of fact um there were no turkeys uh, where we grew up at Darbonne Post Office. Uh, and I, I got to participate in the restoration of 1910, 11, until World War II. And that's when the cotton farming in Louisiana stopped because of economics. Union Parish is what's called the Good Piney Woods. The soil is really pretty fertile. Or piney woods where you have hardwoods growing you know you got high soil fertility where you have nothing but pines growing you have low natural fertility and being a mixture of pine hardwoods northwest louisiana is uh, it was pretty productive for pine wood piney woods and uh, so it it cycled from uh from being virgin timber up until the late 1800s and that's when most of the virgin timber was cleared. that's when my grandfather came from south carolina they had log rollings, they, they cleared the virgin timber and cleared cotton fields by hand with, with cross-cut saws. Uh, it, it was converted. As we've talked, um, wildlife is a byproduct of land use. It's based on what land use. Everybody said, well, man, y'all are really doing a good job managing turkeys or deer. The economics and land use is what drive wildlife populations, your 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 landscape level habitat. And in the 1880s, they cleared the virgin timber, cotton farming, very few people realize Union Perry was the um, number one cotton producing parish in the state at one time. Yes, sir. Now, at this time, the Mississippi River had, had no big levee system, and all that fertile soil on the Mississippi River was still going underwater. As World War II ended, cotton farm had uh, waned, and it was just a natural regeneration of our second growth timber in Union Parish that coincided with the deer restocking program. It was one of the, one of the r- main reasons it was successful, uh, is the, uh, the habitat was just right, right? And there were no deer there, and Wildlife and Fisheries uh, started their restocking program in 1949, and just like the Habitat, uh, wildlife management was not really um, a big time career at that time. But with the end of World War II, you had a lot of veterans coming out of uh, out of World War II. And with the GI Bill, they went and, and got degrees in wildlife management. I got you. Uh, Louisiana Wildlife Department was very, very fortunate. Some of those original and I remember some of the administrators I worked with, they were at Point of La Some of them were at the Battle of the Bulge and they came home and got wildlife degrees. And Louisiana has always been fortunate in the quality of their wildlife department. i worked with a lot of them. And uh, these guys came home and saw that Deer, we need to restock deer on most of the state. And they started in 1949. And, uh, the restocking program went from 49 to uh, 69. And one of the big things, and I remember, I, the reason I mentioned the wildlife biologists that were working at that time, I read a memo when I looked at the deer, uh, restocking records years ago. Joe Herring was, was, uh, one of the bio, wildlife biologists in charge of that program. He was from Hilly. And uh, he went to Louisiana Tech. And I I read a memo where he recommended with the deer restock in the state, we should use only native deer. But there was a lot of political pressure to bring deer from outside, uh, particularly Wisconsin deer, because they were much bigger up there and there's a reason for that. But uh, it was a lot of political pressure, but the biology we had at the time recognized that we would do better, our, our deer would recover a lot faster with native deer. And so fortunately, we, we ended up using about 78% native deer from, from across the state. So. So those 78 do you know where all they may have come from
0: i mean you know they they obviously pulled them from different
1: areas yeah yeah well the um in looking at the total restocking program we we released about three thousand deer over that 21 year period averaged about 145 deer per year the peak year was 1951 with 380 deer the diversity and, and i and we probably won't get into details but we just did a mississippi state just did a genetic study on the restock deer populations in the state and they found that the deer had a really good genetic diversity. And it's because we stayed primarily with the Louisiana native deer. And they came from all over the state. They're private properties, uh, refuges, wildlife management areas. Um, a lot of them came from Madison Tensaw Parish. That's where we still had deer in the swamp, the, the Mississippi swamp there, of course. And WMAs, we had Red Dirt, Catahoula and West Bay. Those were in Southwest Louisiana. We had a lot of private donations from small landowners. One of them was right there between Farmer and Ruston, the Glen Shadows estate. He had a big high fence when i was a kid and we used to ride around there with mom and dad and we look at the buffalo and i remember seeing a few deer but the big traction for us was look at the buffalo we had in. and we're talking this is in the 50s and um but anyhow there was quite a few deer that were caught in that glen shadows estate high fence they originally came from madison and tensile parish so those deer were like putting delta deer up in the hills gotcha um private donations with gum cove avery island Sandhill Game Farm, Glen Shadows Estate, Pole Lawton and Avery Island. Avery Island went down at Macle- the Macle-Henny, uh They had deer down there, and some of those deer came up here. State parks, the Murray, Chico, and we had state refuges where they trapped deer. Uh, state Forest, Delta, Marsh Island, and Pecan Island. Most of those deer were caught with box traps, but in the later years, and some of our local biologists here, uh, Harry Cook, Jerry Farah. Jerry Farah was a retired, is, lives at Crossroad, a retired state uh, study leader. Harry Cook just recently passed away. Those are the guys that went to uh, Marsh Island, and Delta Refuge, and they caught deer out of airboats. And I've heard so many wild tales about catching those, uh, running those deer out off the levees and the spoil banks, and chasing them with airboats, and coming in with a full, a whole airboat full of sinking airboats. And uh, so the latter, the latter stages of deer restocking um, was done with a lot of deer from the marsh. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we had a wide variety and this recent study from um, Mississippi State shows that we have high genetic diversity in the state across the board and this is because we we use a variety of uh, uh, restocking locations, and for the most part, we avoided deer from outside the state. And as a kid, I remember Wisconsin blue bucks. It was a big deal about Wisconsin blue bucks, um, and, and that's what—that's where our deer herd came from. Well, there's no research anywhere that shows that the Wisconsin blue buck or the Wisconsin deer even persisted for any length of time at all. There's two problems when you move deer from a northern climate like that all the way down to Louisiana. The um, the first is disease resistance. Blue tongue is one of the most uh, severe uh, diseases that can affect deer herds all over uh, the southeast. And southern deer have developed an immunity to a certain extent, an immunity to blue tongue. Blue tongue is a viral disease that's transmitted by the, you're up there in the bow stand in, in early October and you get the black gnats or the nose See them's biting you on the face. You can't see them, but they bite you and, and, and really hurt. That's a Culicoides gnat That's a vector for for blue tongue. Well, the southeast, uh, the deer in the south have kind of developed some resistance to that. You don't have those vectors up north where it's cold, and the northern deer have no resistance or very low resistance uh, to EHD or blue tongue. And so you move that deer down here, and one example of what happens: uh, Harry Jacobs and Dr. Harry Jacobs in Mississippi State was conducting research with. Uh, northern deer, crossing northern deer with southern deer in his research pen. And he had a, an EHD outbreak in his deer pen. 25% of the southern deer died from blue tongue. 75% of his northern deer died from blue tongue. Three times the level of mortality. Because they were used to it down here? Because they were not used to it. I mean, no, I'm talking about our deer. Yeah, our deer. They, they died in, in that particular instance. It was just a, an example of what happens. 75% of the southern deer did not die. They were resistant. Only 25 percent of the northern deer live. I got you. so when you move and and our records show that uh, particularly in Union Parish we we uh, we had 52 deer from Wisconsin released on the old Union WMA and more than likely more than likely most of them were gone within a year from uh, from diseases I got you now
0: what i what you showed me was uh, there were two main places in Union Parish.
1: That's correct. Where we restocked. That's right. The Wisconsin deer went to Union WMA, the old Union WMA. And the native Louisiana deer that came from uh, red dirt and uh, Catahoula went uh, five miles south of Spearsville. And there was about 52 Wisconsin deer on Union WMA and about 51 released uh, down at Spearsville. And... Uh, but the, uh, the other reason northern deer don't do well down here is a general rule of ecology called the Berg, Bergman's Rule of Ecology. As you go north, mammals, particularly big mammals, they get bigger as the climate gets colder that's because they can conserve their body heat if you're bigger you have less surface area and you can maintain your body heat well those deer up there in wisconsin and saskatchewan you know you, you read about bucks 200 350 pounds 400 pounds you move that deer to the marsh in south louisiana and he doesn't have a chance as a matter of fact uh dr mark johnson moved wisconsin deer to a, to a marsh property down uh golden meadows down in that down in there, South Louisiana, and those deer didn't do well at all. And the ones that lived after a few years, they were actually smaller than the native Louisiana deer in that uh, facility. Yet.
0: So they actually got small.
1: They actually, they were not as big as the Louisiana deer. Wow. You know, it's, it's something mystical about the, the, the Wisconsin blue bucks. As a matter of fact, just not probably 15 years ago, at one of our public hearings we had an, old, uh, an older gentleman get up and he wanted to pass a law that every landowner could bring one or two Wisconsin deer and turn loose on its property so it's still in in people's mind that we can improve genetics with uh, by moving deer from somewhere else mother nature has refined the genetics in louisiana deer to live reproduce in louisiana condition environmental conditions
0: You know, let's, let's talk about the deer that, that they released I saw the, the study what
1: was it 30 something bucks and in Union Parish it was 36 bucks and 68 does and uh you know, that's pretty much uh, most uh, natural sex ratio without a bunch of hunting is, is usually about two or three females for each male. So I don't know that that was by design. You know, they were just catching deer as They could catch them. I'm sure there was some some native deer already hanging around the edges, you know. A dispersal uh, of yearling bucks is typically three to five miles, and, and occasionally you have one that goes 25 miles. With deer on the Mississippi River there, it would you know, we had some deer hanging around, native deer. What did the what did the residents you were growing up in this year what were the residents
0: talking about did, did, was it getting around well, about the restocking that's
1: a really good question because uh, when 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 we saw that first buck uh, there at Darbon Post Office, I had no idea. Of course, I was, you know, I was uh, thirteen or fourteen. I had no idea there was a deer restocking program in the state. Yeah, I had, had absolutely no idea. My memory is that <laughs> we didn't know the stock restocking program till later. Right. And I, I remember, uh, I remember our first uh, deer hunt in 1961. I made the first deer hunt with my two brothers. My dad took us out and uh, put a put a feed sack on, on the base of a tree, and we scattered out and uh, made our first deer hunt. And um, after after about an hour, I got bored and shot a big fox squirrel with my shotgun. But there was a shot across the creek, and sure enough, someone had killed a big ten point buck. Really? Yeah. And uh, the thing I remember about those early years is how big the bucks were. And and there's there's a very there's two very good reasons why they were larger back then. Uh, number one, it was a lot lower deer herd. They've just restocked them. They were still expanding and uh, they were below carrying capacity. You always get your biggest animals when the deer are below carrying capacity. And the other thing is it hadn't been a hunting season. So there was pretty good age structure. It had to be really good age structure. Yeah. You had some older bucks. And, uh, but as the years went on, uh, the deer herd increased and reached carrying capacity, and then in the seventies, um, you remember we started either sex seasons you know, to maintain control, and and the deer size went down, the buck size went down, and there's a reason for that: the deer herd was above the food supply and the hunters were so good, there was no age structure. They were predominantly yearling bucks. Now you see some some pretty good aging deer in Union Parish and some really nice bucks. But, uh, now you mentioned shooting a fox squirrel with your shotgun.
0: That's correct. What was the predominant weapon? Was shotguns the most Absolutely predominant weapon? Absolutely
1: shotgun. Nobody had a deer rifle. And uh, I went on that first deer uh, hunt in 61 with uh, with a double barrel shotgun and three or four years later I killed my first deer in 64 with a bolt action 16 gauge shotgun and that was a predominant and we went through the same line of firearms as most people in the southeast we went with shotguns then lever action open sighted lever action 30 30s and then I went with a 30 alt 6 742 but I didn't put a permanent scope on it I put a Pacmire tip mount so I could see those iron sights if action, action guys. Dad did the same thing. Yeah. Well we all went through the same same cycle. And then once I uh, got tired of that automatic, then I got to think about how accurate Bolt Action two seventies. And of course I read every word that Jack O'Connor ever wrote about the two seventy. So I went out and got a bolt action two seventy. And so that's that was my progression and preferred implements the destruction. Wow.
0: <laughs> now now you, now look folks, he, he he ain't no slouch when it comes he's as knowledgeable in the deer woods as he is on the paper. Talk tell me about that recurve kill you got there in that picture.
1: Well that's, that's interesting. Uh, that was one of the unluckiest deer in the world. <laughs> Literally. I harvested the first deer in uh, with a gun in sixty uh, four. Well me and my buddies in high school we started doing a little archery and bow hunting and uh and in sixty six my friend Danny Frazier and our buddy Johnny Long and uh, we all gathered up and got a boat and we went to the hooker hole and camped at Mr. George Foster's camp and we camped on the Union Parish side and we motored across and hunted the Georgia Pacific Wildlife Management Area bow hunting and at that time it had just uh, just opened deer season it had been a refuge and I never will forget walking through the woods and at times you could just see white the woods were real open and you could just see whitetails ahead of you just a wave of white tail. there was a lot of them and we were coming in from a different way I had a Ben Pearson recurve and some microflight eight uh, fiberglass arrows with Ben Pearson razorhead. And uh, it was just an unlucky deer. And that was 1966. You remember how far he was? Yeah, it was running full speed at about uh, 10 yards. That's why he's un- rather unlucky. Not only is it right. recurve, he was <laughs> running wide open. <laughs> yeah, it, it's really... Uh, All we knew, we didn't know how to bow hunt. All we knew is dog hunting at the time. And we just lined up four of the guys on a pipeline and the other four were walking through the woods trying to push a deer towards them. I was one of the walkers and the guy above me jumped it and it came by at warp speed and we're just unlucky man well look that's i'm thank you for for talking with me this yeah. is yeah.
0: you know i wanted to get somebody native to the parish that had a background in the parish and you you told us exactly what we wanted well
1: that's good brother
0: well i, I appreciate enjoyed it you. yes sir Now I want to shift gears and focus on the hunters and the hunting during this time, so I enlisted the help of two gents that I'm quite fond of. My dad, Terry Hicks, affectionately called Grizz, and Uncle Scotty Booth. Now Uncle Scotty, he really isn't my actual uncle. I've always called him uncle because that's because the families are so close. Now during the interview, a few different camps are mentioned. Back in those days, the camp life was common amongst hunters in North Louisiana. One camp mentioned is Crow's Camp. Now, I needed to get a good description of the camp from an outside source, so I asked one of my best friends, Joe Booth, who was also Uncle Scotty's nephew, to describe that place for me. Now, Joe painted a picture, and it is absolutely perfect. This is what he said. As a young adult, I look back at my time at Crow's Camp, and it really was what hunting is all about. You leave your house on a Friday and just hope your two-wheel drive truck will make it all the way back to the camp or that the backwater at the river was down enough that you could get to it. Now, I can remember following my grandfather Miller Booth down Crow Camp Road. And now looking back, that man could drive a two-wheel drive truck in the mud better than Dale Earnhardt could drive a race car. Crow's Camp was located at the end of the dirt road, probably two, three, four miles against the Upper Washtenaw National Wildlife Refuge. Now, it was really deep in the woods. The excitement and the relief you got when you finally got to Crow's Camp? were one and the same. Looking back, there is no way I could spend the night at that camp right now. The camp was constructed of wood timbers for a frame and had black tar paper for exterior siding. When you entered the front door of the camp, you walked into the kitchen and the dining area. The walls were covered with names of hunters and what they killed and what day they killed it on. Now I'm not talking about a nice picture frame consisting of the names they were just written on the wall like graffiti. In the kitchen, there was a large buck stove and that was our only source of heat because there was no electricity or running water. The sleeping quarters were a large room behind the kitchen that consisted of five bunk beds and one regular bed. The floors were rough cut one by 12 boards that you dare not walk on them barefooted. And if you chose the top bunk near an exterior wall, you could almost see the stars through the soffit in the ceiling. I can remember them telling me a story about my uncle Coy. He was asleep one night on the bottom bunk and he was awakened to a cold nose touching him. And when he woke up, he found that there was a possum right there in the bed with him. Bathroom facilities were the outside area. We brushed our teeth outside near a 55-gallon drum. And when Brian White brought a used portable toilet potty, we thought we were uptown. The only thing agreed on about the toilet was you had to move it every time you used it. Now, I can remember at night, if you were in a bind, it was hell trying to find where your fellow hunter had moved the toilet at in the woods. I spent my time there from 1981 until 1990, and they were some of the best times in my life. (laughs) That 1990 date is very significant in Joe's life. Following the 1990 deer season in the spring of 1991 on May 1st, Joe lost his daddy, Ronnie Booth. Then an explosion at the IMC fertilizer plant in Sterlington. Mr. Ronnie was also Uncle Scotty's older brother. And that ended Joe's time at Crow's Camp. Now y'all give a listen to Grizz and Uncle Scotty talk about how modern deer hunting began in the parish.
2: Which one of you is oldest? Terry Lee. No. I'm the <laughs> hey, My Skeeter. hair might be white. not Skeeter's Skeeter, the, oldest. the oldest. Skeeter is the oldest, but then Terry's older.
3: Oh, we gotta start with the oldest.
2: No. no. <laughs> the
3: old, the Alright, why do you want me to tell me?
0: I want you I want you to tell me the first thing you remember about hunting. Whether it be squirrel hunting.
3: Okay.
0: Or whether it be anything. What do you remember the first?
3: Well, I remember the first squirrel hunt I went on was behind this house behind the pond with the squirrel dogs that Papa Foots had and she treed it and I had a 410, and it was a black fox squirrel and that's the first squirrel I ever killed Mm -hmm. and that's the first hunt I can remember but I remember going deer hunting years years ago uh Way back when I was a little fella, probably six, seven year old, maybe a little older. I don't know when they really first had a season. Being up in a stand that we built in a tree. I didn't have a gun. I was looking and been there for days and days seemed like without seeing anything. And then all of a sudden at Big Cane Creek, I seen one cross that creek. And that's about the only deer we saw that season. Really? Do you remember what year it was? No. It was probably in the mid-60s to something like that. Okay. It was... But the first one around here I saw was over there behind Johnny Bridges' house. There was old crib, and I was over there, and one of them black and tan dogs I had, we was over there and she started running, and it was a deer. Yeah. Company. Who uh
2: who what was the first deer you ever put hands on? Probably that and I kill. <laughs> nah. I remember when Terry killed it, <laughs> Two killed it that uh, Brown Sweet Sixteen. Yeah he did. Yeah, down at the bottom of the dog graveyard, that was that was a real good deer. cross. when we turned to go into Ronnie's house, uh-huh. there was a little old road right there. And I remember when we came down the road Terry, I think Terry and Larry was dragging it out that road right there. And uh, I was almost as excited as he was. Back then, everybody didn't kill a deer. It was it was something to kill a deer. Now all these kids, like six and seven year old, kill the first deer. Man, it wasn't like that back then. You didn't we didn't have the deer that we have now. Yeah. What what y'all think? you know changed what what brought
0: about more numbers like that more more people being able to kill deer oh i would say hunting clubs you think so a lot of it really yeah well i remember you know i guess one of my earliest memories being a little fella you know and i'm sitting in your pickup and i just remember I, I remember sitting there and looking in the side mirror and we were down at the on hopewell road yeah And where everybody always gathered up before we turned dogs out and i just remember looking in that rearview mirror and in that rearview mirror or that side mirror it was just trucks about as far as i could see behind us and you know i guess i was little you just told me to stay in truck and you know y'all would gather up and everybody would kind of make a plan about where we was going to turn out and and everybody gonna make a stand and then they turn the dogs out and it just seemed it was more you could hunt wherever
2: you wanted to we did, we hunted wherever we wanted to. Squirrel hunting, deer hunt. But everybody had their little areas, especially deer hunting. Squirrel hunting was a little different. But deer hunting, you had your area that your bunch hunted in, and then over here, there was Dan Albrittner and them hunted over there. And then you moved to another area, you know, you get up around Loran, the Rams is hunted up there. But everybody had their certain little, wasn't no hunting clubs, but everybody still had their little home area they hunted in. Now, if the dogs got out of there, you know, you went with the dogs. But yeah. And I can remember before we had CBs, radios and everything, it was a lot different then. They put you out on stand and they left you there. Really? And man, it would be cold and you'd be sitting there and you may not hear no dogs. And then when the CBs came about, all of a sudden when the dogs started coming Come your way everybody get on the cb and you be sitting there waiting all of a sudden everybody pulls up all around you you know but back when we first started and uh running dogs and everything that when they put you out on stand they expect you to stay there they come back and got you really and uh and it would be some long cold hours when you wasn't hearing nothing now when you heard them <laughs> dogs things perked up but yeah uh when you didn't hear nothing the my favorite memory was, was Terry Lee picking me up must go into to the old store. It's the Antioch store now, but it was new banks the store then. That was the highlight of the morning. Yeah. But Terry Lee come around and pick me up, and we got to go to the store because that was something else. Things was different back then, man. You get to go to the store, you, was, you thought you'd done, you'd done something. you something. Yeah. Huh. But we stayed at that old camp down. We called it John Henry's old camp, and we spent many a night down there and, and uh, get up and, and hunt, and we had some good times down there. Where was that at, John Henry camp? It was just past the road. He goes to Ronnie's old house. You go with the camp still there. You go on down there, and I think that temple boy lives up on top of the hill uh-huh. and right down there the camp on the left, and it looks different than it did. Had a big old plate glass window right there. And we had an old walker dog that Larry got from Bodick and he couldn't hear, but he was his name was Frank, and he was real good. And when they turn him loose, you know, he'd always run and you may not catch him, but that night we'd be in the camp and he'd come up and he'd bump that window for somebody to come out and put him in the pen. He'd always come back. <laughs> always it didn't run. matter where he may he'd be across the looter but he'd swim the looter and yep. come back and he'd come back to the camp we put him back in the pen did people still hunt at
3: all back no,
2: then you didn't have
3: a still season then really it was a few several years later they had like a three-day weekend yeah the first one I remember.
0: What did people think? I mean, you go from from dog hunting to steel hunting. I mean, was it popular? Did people do it? No, not count many brown people did it. No, you no. Know, they did probably?
2: I mean, this is just assumption. They probably didn't know how to hunt. Uh-huh. Well From that's what Daddy thing. and him. all said, man, if we knew how to hunt back then, we'd have, boy, we'd have wiped them out because those deer when you especially when you run them with dogs, they had particular crossings. Yep. They loved to run. Yep. And uh if, if you just stay on them crossings and everything and I remember Mr. gravely there was he had a place down there around Hicks Branch and he killed a big old deer down there swimming in the looter and it sunk. Uh-huh. and we stayed down there almost all day trying to get that deer out of the looter and they by the time we left they they hooked him and got him up. I think they was even going to get somebody with scuba diving stuff try to go by and get him. He but, still got it. He still got it in his little shell. Uh, there. Yeah. That was a pretty deer.
0: It comes out, and it comes in, and it webs out. Man, it's a beautiful Yeah. One. I
2: can remember, boy, he, we was, we sat on the bank, and they were out in the boat, you know, trying to hook him, trying to hook him, and stayed down there most of the day just trying to get him out. Mm-hmm you remember your first deer? I do. I, like I say, I didn't kill a deer until I was like 17 years old, and it was a crow's camp up there. We started still hunting up there before they did here. Yeah, everything was dog hunting down here, but we still hunted more up there because they had that big river bottom. And uh, I had missed a couple of deer. I'd always get real, I got buck fever real bad. And I'd get nervous, I'd shoot over them or something. And I was sitting uh, sitting in the stand. Daddy had a lean to stand and we had found a lot of deer sign there, a lot of rub bushes and everything. It was opening day of season, and I was sitting in the stand, and I heard something off to my right, and I looked around, and it was two deer. They they were really probably playing. To me, they were fighting. They had heads down. They were, you know, pushing and shoving, and they looked like they were exact the same. Both of them was little six points, and I had uh, my granddad's old Model 12 Winchester shotgun, and I shot, and when I shot, they both ran off, And I said, well, I've missed another one. And I was sick. I got down looked, didn't find anything, got back up on my stand, about to cry. And I said, I'm going to get down and look one more time. And I went went to the right out there, and he was laying out there. And I drug him about a quarter of a mile. I was so proud of that deer. (laughs) And loaded him up in the truck and took him back to Crow's camp. And he was a pretty little 6 spot. Now, now crows camp that's a special place it was and and everybody in that area knew where crows camp was it was at the end of the dirt road it was no just uh, cedar boards and tar paper shack we didn't have any electricity somebody would take a generator from time to time we didn't have we mostly used Coleman liners didn't have any running water we'd bring water in and uh, a lot of people looked at and they said man there ain't no way i'd spend a night in there but we had a lot of good times up there i was at work today and a boy we
0: were talking and, and he's been after a few hogs and he brought up crows camp and it's just and i mean that's we're up in arkansas right yeah and i mean it's it's just known in this
2: area you know folks folks gonna know about crows camp Yep, yeah, that's right i've got a lot of pictures of crows Camp. daddy used to always keep up with when somebody passed away he said well you know there's not many of us left that spent a night at crows camp and now it's just a very very few uh no yeah
0: yeah yeah
2: it's uh, and uh, you know this camp here, you know Crow's camp,
0: this camp, now brought us out here, you know, just to drum up some old memories and yeah. some old thoughts and feelings. And if you keep messing with that microphone, I man, you're gonna fight for this over Will. <laughs> I haven't
3: done nothing.
0: <laughs> you fiddling with it, <laughs> but you know I, I I can remember sitting right here as a as a young boy, and this whole place have trucks from from the wood line there oh, all yeah. the way, and 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 Papa and Mister Miller and Mister Gerald. And and Mr. Ernest would be in there, and they'd be cutting up, and Mr. Ronnie Williams, and they would be cutting up uh, potatoes and onions and getting the meat and talking. And and man, if we could stack up all the deer that we killing underneath that, that <laughs> lean-to right there out here,
2: <laughs> that's right, we wouldn't be able to stand. That's right, it'd be a pile. But you know, they had their own special uh, recipe for squirrel mugging. And people ask me somebody squirrel mugging, and they they'll always say. Ravenly Hicks's recipe, but Rayman Lee and Daddy Nock Ernest, they all use that, but everybody's was different because I've heard people say, well, now James Payton and them, you know, they put English peas and corn in there. We, that's a vegetable soup. We don't do that. Yeah. And, uh, but like I said, we had our own special recipe, and I remember one time I wanted to, to cook a mulligan and take it to work. And so me and Daddy called Mr. Rabinley and he met us out here and he helped us. We cooked a big old pot, cooked two pots. Mm -hmm. And uh, I took one to work the next week and we warmed it up and everything just to show him what a squirrel mulligan was. Yeah, well I tell you, that that right
0: there is just, he cooks them and they're good. But it's just something about them old days. That's right. It just seems so good, you know. Uh, All of old visiting and, and people being out here. And I just, it, it just, it'll never be
2: replicated, no. what we did. No.
0: Throughout the South, there are two basic methods you could use to be successful on a deer hunt. You could sit in a blind or a stand over food or a travel corridor in a method called steel hunting, which is the most commonly used method by today's standards. Or you can do what was done for many years, and that's use a pack of hounds, whether they be walkers or beagles or what Scotty refers to later as pot liquors, a mixed breed. Now these dogs would push the deer out to where someone would be standing, commonly called standers. The hunter will position themselves in an area where they believe that the deer will run, and they'll just simply wait and hope that the deer comes where they are. What you're about to hear is Scotty's description of what happens during a race and folks he tells it to a T. now there is a disclaimer before we get going during his description scotty mentions the road now what he's talking about are old log and roads or small trails that weren't owned by the state or the parish these small areas were perfect for cutting off a race while hunting over a public road is highly illegal as every good dog hunter knows right guys now what I want you to do because again you tell such a good story I want you to tell what's a dog race you know we're talking about running dogs now we're probably going to have some people listening to this may never even been dog right. hunting there may be some young people you know yeah. young folk. you know dog hunting's kind of a it's, it's trending out it is and they may have never been a part of a dog race before right. so I want you to just Real quick, break down what
2: happens during a race. Well, like I say we had dogs. Miss Ray Lynn and him had dogs, and we had some good ones, too. And we'd run dogs all season, keep them in good shape. But when they go out there first thing in the morning, like you said, before they'd meet up, decide what block of woods we were going to run. And everybody knew from where you were going to turn out, the best places to be. So they would scatter out. People drop people off on the stand and be ready. And most times, daddy and them would walk through the woods with the dogs. When they turned them out, they didn't just turn them out. They turned them out and they started walking through the woods and, uh, Old dogs would get to smelling around and they may cold trail a little bit, or they may just when you threw them out, throw them out right on the deer, and boy, he was up. And when that race started, man, it would make the hair stand up on the back of your neck. Because boy, them dogs, they get to, to bellering and everything. We had one dog old named old Joe, and uh his voice was so strong one time. My oldest brother Larry and Ronnie Williams took him out when we first got him to turn him out. And when he opened up, they thought it was a mountain lion hollering. <laughs> they called the dogs up and loaded them up and come home. And the next week, Daddy and Mr. Dan them and him was running dogs, and they had turned them out. And when Larry pulled up, he said, what, what's that? And Mr. Dan said, that's old joke. And Larry looked kind of funny, and Daddy said, that's what you heard last week, wasn't it? <laughs> and he said, yeah. But anyway, the dogs would jump, and they'd be gone. And uh, you were sitting there on your stand just waiting to hear them dogs, and they'd be coming. Boy, them dogs, they would be letting the hammer down. Now, that deer may be way ahead of them or he may be just a little ways ahead of them. Most time, he'd, he'd be out a pretty good ways ahead of them. And if they were running more than one, say a buck and a couple of does, a lot of times that buck would peel off and them does would stay on the doe. You never knew till they came out. And back then, we didn't shoot does. And that was a no-no to shoot a doe deer. So when you were sitting on your stand, especially a young man, and when that deer hit the road, they wasn't wouldn't, they wouldn't wasting no time. They were getting across there. So you had to look, be sure that deer had horns before you shot. And a lot of times the person running the dogs that was walking the dog, the buck would cut cut around and try to come back behind him. And a lot of times they would kill the deer, you know, being out there with the dogs and the dogs would take off the doe uh, the deer uh, the doe deer and then the buck would try to slip back around and whoever was walking the dogs would get a chance to kill him. But we killed some nice deer, but back then it wasn't like it is now. If you killed a spike three inches long, you was just as proud of him as you was an ape. Absolutely. And uh so like I say and nowadays it seems like if you don't kill at least a big deer, you know, people are like, What'd you shoot that one for? You should have let him grow a few more years but, you know, we grew up during a time man, uh, just like Mr. yesterday, you know, I heard folks talking about the last few years he hunted, you know, kill three does. Well, he's 90 years old. Let him kill what he wants to that's kill. That's exactly right. So, uh, but yeah, we had a lot of fun with it. And and you didn't kill a whole bunch of deer. If you kill two or three in a week's time, everybody took a week's vacation. If you kill two or three deer, you're doing pretty good. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. Well, you know, and, and that's something that I want, I'm trying to, a lot of people have a misconception about me because they think I love big deer. I like to score big deer. But what I really love is when somebody brings a deer to me that they're fired up about. Yeah. Whether it be a 65-inch six-point or 178-inch 10-point, if you fired up about it, I'm going to be fired up right. about it. you know, And, and that's what I like because we all grew up you know just having fun with it Yeah. and it and it really kind of and i'm not going to say it's it's a bad thing it is what it is it's it like you said before it's it's a little trended where people uh, uh they're more concerned with what someone else thinks of their deer than what they think right. of it. you know and and that's you know i want to i just want to sometimes want to pull people back and say hey man have fun you know, don't worry about That's it. That's right. As long as it's legal by state rules and by club
2: rules, yep. lay her down. It's if, a, if it's a trophy in your eyes, you know, everybody's got different ideas what a trophy is. Some people just want to kill a deer. That's right. And uh, Now, Dad, what was that
0: that pipeline up the road here? Right past the looter, right when you cross the looter Bridge, you got that, that pipeline right there. Oh, uh, it takes gas. That's right. I'll never, forget, I'll never forget that. You know what story I'm about to tell? Yeah. Well, you had to get out there and swim for the deer. Uh. (laughs) Look, he was... We were going down through there. I'm talking about they were wide open. And we get to the... We're going down Texas gas pipeline. Radios are... You know how the old radio talks Oh, yeah. folks on there just... Yep, 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 yep. And when he stopped, turned the truck off. I mean, the windows were up. And it sounded like those dogs were right there. I could hear them in the truck. And he was... (laughs) I'm talking about just they they was on him he jumps out and runs over the top and the deer run out I mean it was right there at the looter and he shot and the deer ended up in the looter now the looter was up at this time yeah deers hung up out there in the middle of the looter what do you think happened
2: he swam out there and
0: got he the deer. swam out there and got <laughs> it it was cold wasn't it Grizz? yes it was very very cold. <laughs> And they tried to make a little fire. I remember trying to make a little fire for yeah. them. Didn't make much of it. I mean, you know what it was? Spike. Right. You know, and that, that kind of effort yeah. for a spike. You know, by today's standards, I can almost pretty well guarantee you, they somebody listening to this podcast would have had that happen and just accounted that deer as a loss. Right. Yeah, yeah they, they be, wouldn't put the effort into it.
2: No. I can remember, like, say, up at Crows Camp, and the majority of those men worked at Commercial Sawgreens down there, and then I later. But, uh... They took a week or two weeks vacation. First week of deer season up there doing steel hunting, and they wanted to kill their three to five deer. They didn't care if every one of them was a spike. It didn't have to be eight point. They they didn't. If a deer came out, Mr. Wayne Gibbons, Billy Joe Owens, Barrero Hicks, if he was if he had horns, they would bring him to camp. I and, and everybody was proud of that too. Nobody you know looked down on them or anything. So yeah, that. That was a big deal. Yeah. I remember,
0: you know, one opening. I remember one year I watched this this button head all season long. He came out. Dad used to plant ryegrass. The little deer would come out and eat ryegrass all year long. And I'm I'm thinking, okay, keep it up next year. You know, next year. Sure enough, next year, opening day. It ain't even good daylight. It's barely shooting light. The deer walks out, had spikes. I shot him you know it was yeah it was exciting right. you know that's what now you're probably going to want to watch it and yeah you know what because i feel like in and i know maybe in your career and his career and everybody sometimes there's a deer that may not turn you on till you let him go because there's somebody that he may walk past that it does that's right you know it may be a, a young a young person so that's that's kind of where i am but hey if i get fired up and i want to shoot a full point yeah I'm gonna shoot a four point as long as it ain't breaking club rules because we can't shoot four points on the club. So I ain't shooting back here. Right. That's really what I was coming back here to shoot that day yeah. when I killed that big deer. Right. I was gonna shoot anything. Yeah. He ended up coming out, so it's
2: just the way it goes. That's right. That's deer hunting right there. It is. That's being at the right place at the right time. Well, that's all it is.
0: That's all it is. When it's your time to kill one, it's just your time. Wouldn't you say that?
3: Oh yeah. hundred so, percent.
0: So how? When did you learn? Y'all remember how?
3: When you learned how to hunt deer? Well, I'll tell you, he's talking about the dogs, I don't know if Scotty remembers, we didn't know what to do. We used to leave John Henry's camp and go way down in there at the cutoff, off yep. and get on a stand behind Antioch Church, way back in there toward mm. the Forks. Yeah. And they turned the dogs loose up on Limber Tire Road, right. five miles from us, yep. because that's where they ended up at. They done crossed about three rows before they ever got down to us. Yeah. We didn't know. Yeah. We didn't know what to
2: do. Yeah. You just kind of learned trial by fire then. Yeah. And I can remember specific dog. I remember tearing him. He had an old dog called Blaze, and he had two black and tans too. And we were deer hunting one time, and it was down there below the camp, had them black and tans. And back then, it wasn't all this hog hunting like people do, but they bait a big old black hog, and I'm talking about <laughs> Man, it looked like big as the biggest that truck to me. And Terry killed the little 16 gauge boy. I thought we had done something. It was a big old black boy hog. And... It's three legs. Yep. yep. Three yep. legs. Did somebody somebody bring him in? or I don't know.
0: Had y'all ever seen hogs up here before? No. Uh-uh. Huh. But like
2: I say, he was down in that looter bottom and everything, and boy, them dogs, I, that, I bet that's the first hog they had ever seen. And they had that sucker bait, and they were running in, biting at him, and he was popping them tusks and everything. And uh, I just stood back. I, it just amazed me. But Terry ran in there and, and put the buckshot to him, and we put him down. Ronnie Nolan and them drove into the old Clear Branch, the, the sure enough Clear Branch landing right there and uh, and picked us up. Yeah. Did, uh, I know some people dog hunted on horseback. Anybody do that much around here? The woods wasn't open enough around here. That was more like in the river bottom and places like that and the big open bottom. Yeah. But yeah, I heard a lot of people talking about that. But uh, no, we never did have anybody that hunted off horses around here.
0: Yeah,
3: okay. You know, when they first opened the do- deer seed, they opened it Thanksgiving week or the week after. Right. And it wasn't open but like, Two weeks I believe. That was it. Really. And how long did that last, you remember?
2: I don't know what year they started adding days to it. And used to be it was more around Thanksgiving and Christmas it's when we deer hunted now you know it opens real early and it seemed like they opened it earlier and earlier every year but uh and i remember when bow hunting first started i never had been a bow hunter but you know that was something to see somebody you know bringing out a bow gonna kill the deer with a bow we just glad to kill one with a gun back then so uh but things have changed a lot it has for the better for the worse but in a lot of ways, as far as deer numbers and everything like that, it's for the better. And we're killing better deer just like this year. You scoring deer. We enjoyed that so much coming down there on Thursday night watching you score deer. I've never seen that many good deer come out of Union Parish before. Yeah. And I tell you, that,
0: and I'm glad, kind of, I guess we can bring it full circle and end it with this. That, what we were doing last year, really reminded me of what we used to do here. Yeah. You got a lot of people fired up about oh, him Yeah talking good and having fun. Yep. You know, and that yep. was,
2: there'd be a crowd down there every Thursday night and we'd sit around we'd talk and talk about who killed what and what you scored dear and just everybody visited and, and yeah, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was.
3: You know, are you still on? Yeah, go ahead. You asked me a question. What did I think about, uh, What you know, and I said hunting clubs, mm-hmm. but it's a combination of stuff. I think clubs the timber, the mm-hmm. clear cut, the thickets, yeah, has helped. Yeah, with as far as the deer population goes, and the management that wildlife fisheries has started doing, and all. Yeah, yeah, and and you know, I think this is just my
0: personal perception, and and you're in the timber industry, and that's that's my background as well. You know, these these the the timber management, they're in, they're in the business of managing their timber. Right. I feel like as far as the deer management goes, that's not that's not really their forte. It as is As hunters, not. we should be, if we're concerned about it, we should be doing something. If you're that concerned about it, plant you some food plots. Right. You know, make sure your deer have something to eat, not just during deer, deer season so you can kill them. You need to have some, something to eat so that they can survive through the winter. I'm telling you, you know just well as I do, you're, you're driving home in, on, in February when people have pulled their feeders out. Right. Where do you see deer? Right on the side of the road trying to find some green, green. That's right. the only place thing growing. Right. So, mm-hmm. you know, if, if people are that concerned and worried and they want to start, you know, saying what can we what can be done for deer management, start such a house. You know, let let's start doing something on these leases, planting some food plots, and again, not just to kill over, but to feed, to take care of the yeah. animals. So, all right guys. You got some good stuff. I appreciate y'all. It's hot, ain't it? What are you gonna say?
3: You're yeah. more than welcome.
0: Thank you. <laughs> Enjoy it. Thank you, Uncle Scotty, I appreciate you. there you have it folks we've covered a lot of ground on this episode but really we've just scratched the surface on the whitetail deer in louisiana now the very next day after recording with uncle larry i was paying for coffee at a local gas station and two gentlemen were discussing the wisconsin blue deer so the legend is live and well unlike the deer now look i want everybody listening to make sure we're on the same page okay i score deer for the buckmasters whitetail trophy records and i really enjoy putting my hands on these rare monsters but what really gets my blood pumping are the deer that people are genuinely excited about the ones who when they walk up had to have their deer scored have the biggest smile on their faces and when i ask about the deer they say well there ain't much of a story but then when they share it it's one of the best deer tales i've ever heard that's hunting and that's antlers and hicks thanks for listening and remember live your life past 20 yards